חברי הכנסת, אין מתנגדים, בעד, 92. לפיכך, הצעת חוק התפזרות הכנסת העשרים-וארבע ומימון מפלגות, התשפ"ב 2022, עברה בקריאה שלישית ותיכנס לספר החוקים של מדינת ישראל. תודה רבה. תודה, תודה. חבר הכנסת אבוטבול, זה לא חתונה פה, תשב. And just like that, we're back. That's right, a brand new season of Haaretz's Election Overdose podcast. I'm Anshul Pfeffer. We're recording our first episode of Election Overdose Season 2 from the Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv on the morning of July 7. And with me to count down the next 117 days until Election Day and help all you election addicts see the light is Dalia Shendlin. Hello, Angel. I'm really looking forward to finding out what's in store for us. And thank you, first of all, to our loyal listeners for coming back for our second season. And welcome to all the many new listeners I'm sure are very excited to tune in. We're not sure how excited we are, but without further ado, let's get right into it and sum up the first week of this election campaign, which totally coincidentally is also the first week on the job of a man called Yair Lapid as Israel's new prime minister. But before we get to Lapid, I have one, only one burning question for you. Only one? Just the one, following this week's events, and that is, What's your favorite Cuban cigar? And do you like dipping it in a liquor? And if so, which? This is going to be a very short conversation. And the reason it's going to be a short conversation is that I don't smoke cigars and I'm a really bad drinker. But I am a political junkie. And why don't we discuss why you're asking me that question? It's because in the background to this election campaign, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, current head of the opposition, is, of course, on trial in his corruption cases And this week, we've been looking at case number 1,000, where he is accused of getting bribes in the form of fancy champagne and a lot of jewelry in return for government favors, tax breaks, help with visa for his best businessmen buddies. Angel, do you think this is going to affect the campaign? I think that it's already priced in. I think that since we're essentially in the fifth consecutive election where the Netanyahu investigation slash trial are a thing... I don't think you can find in Israel one voter who hasn't made up his mind whether Netanyahu is a lying scumbag who should very soon be in wing 10 of Masyao prison or is the victim of, of a terrible witch hunt and it's the prosecutors slash journalists slash judges who should be the ones being sent to prison. I think though, and this is something maybe you, maybe you have more thoughts on, the fact that we're going into this election when Hadass Klein... The, uh, the current witness and other people are making these, the, these claims against Netanyahu and very detailed. And, and against Sarah Netanyahu. And, we, and we now we know exactly the brands of Cuban cigars that Netanyahu like to smoke and the type of French champagne that uh, Sarah prefers. And how big her ring finger is when she asks for jewelry. I think there may be, and what, uh, I'm interested in your opinion, I think there may be a certain section of voters who are against Netanyahu, that, that may make them go to the polls even at even higher levels of turnout. I have to say that I think that the people who are against Netanyahu have been voting uh, with pretty high turnout rate this entire time, and it's hard to see if there's anybody left to mobilize on that side of the map. But I do think that case 1000 is the understated case that has been 
in some ways underestimated because it's one of the more minor cases. I actually think that as a citizen, just any citizen, that it would drive me nuts. It does drive me nuts to think that a big fancy businessman can just offer some jewelry and champagne and get the prime minister to ask his government for tax breaks. Now, never mind that the tax breaks weren't actually given, but to my mind, that would drive me crazy, especially at a time when Israelis are facing inflation, price spikes, high taxes, everybody's squeezed. I just think that should make people angry, even if they do support him. But as you point out, it has been factored in. What about the new factor? Yet your Lapid, as prime minister, he went to France. He looks like a statesman. Do you think that will change or help him build his image as a statesman, as a leader of the? Well, I think from Lapid's point of view, even though he is, he also is aware that most Israelis have already made their minds up about the trial. The optics of this week were perfect for him. You had Hadass Klein telling, you know, spilling out all these details of the Cohibas and the Cointreau and the uh, and the Dom Perignon. And at the same time, he was above all this. He was flying to the to the land of Dom Perignon, but for a very formal, also very friendly meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. And this is the picture that he wants Israelis to have in their mind. He is getting on with the job. He is the prime minister who does these things, goes and meets with the world leaders. And then there's Netanyahu, who is this hedonistic, grabbing person. Lapid also made it very clear to his staff that he expects to be back in Israel that day. They landed about after two in the morning, but he made a big point that he's not staying overnight in Paris, etc. How useful this will be in the election, I don't know, but this is very much part of Lapid's plan to build the image as the hardworking, competent, no-nonsense no frills, Prime Minister. And also, I think, uh, to compete with Netanyahu, who really tried to corner and capitalize on the image of a statesman, somebody who alone was able to manage Israel's foreign policy over the course of his last term and, and the previous terms as well. I think both Bennett and Lapid, but specifically Lapid, because he was foreign minister and now was prime minister, is giving him a run for his money in terms of saying, we're statesmen as well. We have managed foreign relations. We have capitalized and leveraged the Abraham Accords. We are taking them further. Uh, you're not the only one who can uh, support Israel's position in the world. The statesman and, in Lapid's case, also every bit as good as Netanyahu building images. And the second week of Lapid's uh, term is just another normal week in in Israel, just another week in which he'll be hosting a, a U.S. president. We're not going to go into any of the diplomatic details or policies of Iran and other matters of the region, but how do you think this will affect, if at all, the election campaign. Interestingly, it would be really tempting to say this will be such a boon to his credibility and it will make him really, it will cement that position that he can be a statesperson and welcome the U.S. president and prove he and, Le and Bennett put uh, the U.S. back on the track of bipartisan support for Israel, which Netanyahu damaged. But I have to say that I don't really think it's going to affect the electoral dynamics with all due respect to American presidents. Uh, I think Israelis take them for granted. Yes, sorry, American listeners. I think Israelis generally assume that you are on their side, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I don't really see it as something that sways the voters. No, I agree. And the, we can see from history that uh, U.S. presidential visits have not changed anything. And probably the biggest uh, the biggest example is, is 96 when Clinton came to Israel, even convened a whole international conference at Sharm el-Sheikh for Shimon Peres, who was fighting Netanyahu. 
it didn't help. And it does, doesn't work in the other direction either. I mean, who can forget when Netanyahu went to Congress in 2015 in the throes of an election campaign, trying to boost his position by going behind the back of the president, which is, you know, an enormous statement, uh, rather unprecedented, to make the case uh, against deal with Iran. And it was it, it, huge, it just dominated the headlines for about 48 hours. And then it was over and the dynamics of the race didn't change, at least not at that point. They, they did change very close to the end, but they didn't have any effect, certainly not in my surveys, on the voter dynamics at the time. I think, though, what it will do is it will be part of, of, of what we just mentioned before, the Igla Pid campaign, not just the election campaign, but to make to rebrand himself as Israel's prime minister, even though it's not a game changer in any way. It's nice to have. Definitely nice to have. And we have an election date now. We have November the 1st is when Israelis are going to the polls. But right now there's only one important date, and that's August 15th. So why is it that such an important date, Dalia? How will that deadline define what happens over the next six weeks and beyond? Well, that's the date when we find out who's actually running in this election. And all of the incredible speculation and anticipation I know you all feel when you read the polls and you try to figure out who's winning... I'm sorry to say, but it's not that meaningful because the parties will do so many changes up until that point. They'll probably be shifting around and trying to change right up until the last minute. There's always feverish speculation about which parties, and I've said this before, sorry listeners, but this remains the truth, which parties will merge, break up, collapse, or be established. Now, break up, we already know, uh, because... That deadline was last week, but they could still make so many changes. No, last week was the deadline for breakups that can retain. That can retain their their the funding. Knesset funding. True. Yes, there'll be there'll True. be That's more breakups. They'll be they more can still break up. They just they have less incentive to break up because they won't get that funding. But all these changes, we won't really know who's running, and therefore the voters can't really know who their choices are until that date, which is why that date is so important. After that, the voters will have to, will be one step closer to having to actually make up their minds. The polls will become more meaningful, and the campaigns will begin in earnest in terms of sharpening their messages, uh, thinking about what really they're trying to portray to the voters. Shall we talk about some of those parties? Well, we won't be able to talk about all of them. No, so there's too many. Let's take uh, a few parties. I think we'll take two from the current coalition, two from the Netanyahu camp. Who should we start off with? Let's start with Yamina. They were the outgoing leading party. So Yamina is the first party which has already changed its leader. So that's a, already a major change. Now, as someone who has spent so many years in analyzing voters' intentions and thoughts, at what point does do the voters understand or realize and internalize the fact that it's no longer Naftali Bennett's Yamina now, as we know, it's Ayala Chakit. Well, this is an interesting question because nobody can fail to realize that Naftali Bennett left. He made a big announcement about leaving politics, so they know that. But having said that, the most important thing that happened is over the course of the last year, Yamina's decision to join this government. And there has been, you know, an ongoing sort of accusation on the part of the further right-wing parties over the course of the year that Yamina betrayed its voters and... Likud has been accusing them all year of having no constituency left, no base. Everybody left. And it's not exactly true because they are still retaining about six seats in survey research. We just don't know who those six seats are. Are they the people who voted for them last time or have they been replaced because their old voters are angry at them and they're bringing in voters maybe from the center right or the center? That's what's hard to tell right now, even with a little bit of survey data. But I do think that everybody will remember Ayelet Shaked, even though she was once a rising star, and now she seems a little bit less so. Tell us what who she is. Remind us. I think I don't think we need to actually remind our listeners of who Ayelet Shaked is, but they do. I, I think the really interesting thing about Ayelet Shaked is that she was the rising star of the right. She was someone 
who was seen as both a very uh, outspoken, prominent person, someone who, who who is sort of this Tel Aviv secular woman, but on the far right, which was which seems like an anomaly, and certainly many right-wing voters were excited about the fact that they have this person who they don't usually see that kind of character or type in uh, leading a part, leading a right-wing party. But the thing is, Erdogan seems to have lost her base. She doesn't have the Netanyahu camp. Well, she actually never really had the Netanyahu camp, but she doesn't have the far right anymore because they see her as a traitor, as having sat in this terrible government with the Arabs and the left. And the supporters of the outgoing government have always seen Ayelet Shaked as the person who can never smile when she's sitting in cabinet with the with the left wing. She's always the one that they suspected would. I mean, in the end, she didn't defect, but she was always the one who was seen as as the weakest link in this coalition. And the far right flank of Yamina that retained her loyalty. I would say for me. There's one really important thing you need to know about Ayala Chaked, and that was that she was the leader of the government uh, aspect of the campaign to undermine the Israeli judiciary and expand political control over the Israeli judiciary. That's what she did as justice minister for four years. It was her signature issue. She was proud of it. Uh, if she has any future in politics, she will have to re-embrace that because that has been her major appeal. Okay. Uh, the other high-profile uh, development in Meretz this week was the resignation of Isawi Fridge, who was a uh, par- longtime parliamentarian and a minister in the outgoing government. So he had an illustrious career. And of course, Rinawi Zuabi is out. So it's hard not to notice that the two very important defections from Meretz now are Arab or Palestinian Arab uh, Israeli members of this faction. And I think that raises questions about what's happening in Meretz. You know, does it really remain a Jewish liberal Zionist party? Meretz will certainly warrant uh, much more detailed discussion, the leadership battle there. They're already talking to bring back Zahava Galon, the meanwhile, former leader. Yet, meanwhile, Yair Golan wants to compete. He's also an up-and-coming, but still a kind of the demographic of the Israeli male general who tries to take over politics. But anything is possible So right the now. question of whether Nitzan Horowitz can hang on is, is in the balance, and we'll talk about that in future episodes. A couple of uh, Netanyahu camp parties that I think we should uh, be talking about. One is United Torah Judaism. Now, United Torah Judaism is basically two parties. Offici- officially, they are, they are separate parties. Deglatoire, which represents the Lithuanian stream of ultra-Orthodoxy. Agudat Israel, which represents the Hasidic groups. And every election, there's this kind of cyclical rumors. Will they be running again? They've run together in the last 30 since 92, yes, 30 years together. But every election, there's this question, will they finally test how how powerful, whether they can cross the threshold on their own? But there are actual reasons why they may want to run apart. They do have slightly different agendas. Aguda is more right-wing. It's the Hasidim in general more right-wing. The Lithuanians, the more cerebral, intellectual Lithuanians, at least traditionally, are more left-leaning. Moshe Gaffney had a grandson who got married on Sunday, and this was a big event in which many politicians, including many of the left, came, including Merav Michaeli, who was seen dancing Hasidic dances with women, in the women's section, obviously, and this made a lot of noise, and people are accusing Gaffney within uh, within the Haredi parties of kind of pl- trying to play footsie with the left. Gaffney has his reasons for doing so. He denies that he has any plans for not being part of uh, of the right-wing bloc, but that's another thing that we have to kind of put a pin in 
and discuss at length in a further office. I just want to say there's going to be a lot of talk about weddings and bar mitzvahs over the next few weeks and months because Israeli politicians do a lot of wheeling and dealing at these uh, kinds of events, and it's normal. And I was just listening to a long discussion about internal Likud politics. It was all about who's bar, who's going to show up at whose bar mitzvah. It's very normal. I would think it'd be unlikely if they actually split just because it, it kind of breaks with recent tradition, and I think that everybody's worried about the voter threshold at this point. So what's going on with the religious Zionist party? So the far-right Jewish supremacist religious Zionism is also now formally split into two parties, the Betel Smotrich's Ichud Lumi National Union, and Itamar Bengvir Jewish Power, or Tzmayudit parties, they ran together in the last election, and they're now formally separate, mainly for technical reasons of funding, but there's also some tension between the two party leaders. They each want to show that they're the ones who can draw most of the voters in. There is a temptation, I think, for both of them to run separately. Chances are that happening? If they run separately, once again, they both run the risk of one of them falling below the threshold. They are, and we had a big discussion about this offline, but they are essentially vying for a, a limited pool of voters who may have distinctions between them, but they're a similar pool of voters. Although we will have more to say about the appeal of Itamar Ben-Gvir later in the show. Yes. So one thing we really want to question is, are the current polls, which are that if they run together, they could be the third largest party in the next Knesset, are those credible? And yes, we'll talk about that with our guest. We will. And I just a word about polling to say that while many things are unpredictable at this stage, trends are the important thing. And the Religious Zionist Party has been polling at nine or 10 seats, even occasionally 11, very consistently over the last two months. So that has to be taken as a very real trend. And with us as our extra special guest on the first episode of our new season of Haaretz Election Overdose is one of the true masters of the dark arts, Tal Silberstein. Thank you for being with us, Tal. Tal Silberstein began his career as a campaign strategist on Labour leader Eud Barak's campaign in 1999 and has since gone on to work on a dizzying array of campaigns across the world. In Israel, besides Eud Barak, he has also advised Prime Ministers Eud Olmert and Benjamin Netanyahu. And... Tal and I started our career together. I owe him for advancing my career tremendously. We've worked together in Israel. We've worked together in many other countries. So I'm thrilled to have you here. And I want to ask the first question. That's my right for having worked together for so long. Tal, when we develop strategy for a campaign, we always start off with a very detailed analysis of the landscape of the race. And we try to boil it down to a basic question. What is this election actually about? What do you think this election is actually about? I love to think that uh, this election is unlike the previous election. And this election, by my opinion, is going to be all about stability and uh, the ability to rule for a longer period of time. I think that's uh, the only thing that's going to matter. This is not necessarily what, by the way, the two sides are now doing. If you see Netanyahu is taking cost of living as his uh, main uh, theme at the moment, which I think is a mistake for him. And uh, the other side will probably go around the anti-Bibi. Actually, the only one that until now I heard got it right in a way, even though I've heard you mentioned her before and I'm not a, f- a personal political fan, even though I respect her, is Ayla Chaked. She's the only one that in the last week has spoken about broad government and stability. 
It's interesting that you say that you think it's a mistake for Netanyahu to talk about economy, because for a long time he was considered Mr. Economy, but then he also faced a social protest, a social and economic protest 10 years ago. And on the other hand, the current government has some significant economic achievements, low unemployment, getting the deficit under control. How is Netanyahu going to make that case? I don't know how he's going to make the case. And uh, obviously with this trial going on now about cost of living, it might uh, be even uh, looking weird with the latest revelations uh, we heard there. But uh, I'm not here to take a side. I'm just saying professionally, I think cost of living is not an issue for the Israeli electorate. As strange as it might sound, I believe cost of living is non-issue. It's an, on one hand, it's an issue that everybody is occupied with and people are struggling with, but it's not a defining issue for choosing a party. And this is for two reasons. One is that political parties don't really focus here in Israel on economy and different economic agendas. Very hard, very blur lines, very hard to de- differentiate. And people like education. You know, everybody cares about education. Everybody wants better education. Everybody wants to reduce the cost of living, but no one believes that one has a magic solution for it. So I don't think that this is an issue for the election, actually. That is exactly my reading of Israeli politics. We must be reading the same surveys. So looking at this election beyond the issues, we've had so many elections in the last few years about Netanyahu. Is there a chance this will be an election about someone else that Yair Lapid can... Does Yair Lapid have an interest in making this an election or a referendum on his capabilities is suitable to be prime minister, or is that something that you shouldn't be doing? Well, definitely, Ayla now will enjoy uh, the benefit of uh, an acting prime minister in an electoral campaign, something he has never done before. I think it's going to help him, but very marginally. I think he has his base. I think any uh, additional voters he will take will actually will be cannibalization. So it's not really helping him. I don't think the election is about Yair Lapid at all. And I don't think he will make it about Yair Lapid. It uh, will probably not work. I don't see this time, even though last election was all about Bibi, yes or no, I'm not sure this election is going to be a specific personality. It's about who can keep a new government stable. I think it's about who can demonstrate that they can actually build a stable government. So does that open up the way for a three-headed race in which Benny Gantz will say, well, I'm the only person who can bring in parts of the Netanyahu camp and of the previous coalition and make a more broader uh, coalition in the future? I would say that uh, it is going to be, in my humble opinion, more of a three-way race than a two-way race. I think that if you look at the political landscape, I think that Gantz has better chances of building a broader coalition. He has a chance of getting the ultra-Orthodox in, which I don't see at the moment Lapid does. And I think if he's smart, he will play on that. And he will say, give me the power, and I will build a stable government, not like the narrow ones that uh, have fallen here and caused us all these elections. So he could be making a comeback as the main uh, potential candidate for somehow boosting his party from eight seats in the outgoing Knesset to a big party again? I don't have a new fresh number, so I... I'm a bit, uh, you know, free thinking, but uh, I believe that uh, there is a chance that Benny Gantz would uh, pick up based on that. So you've worked in the past on Labour campaigns, and you worked on a Labour campaign when the last time a a Labour prime minister was elected in Israel, which is by now. Seems so long ago. 23 years ago. Does Labour have a future in your opinion, or has has basically Yesh and perhaps Benny Gantz is Kacholavan as well, basically taken away 
Labour's territory never to return it. Me personally, I don't see how Labour can get back to power, even though I have enormous respect for what uh, Marav Mikhaili did for Labour. I think she brought it back from the dead, and she's doing, I think, a very more than a decent job, but I don't see Labour get any influence uh, back in Israel. Uh, I would say, unfortunately, but this is the case. Do you think any of the parties, let's say the top parties, made any significant mistakes over the last year that will really come back to harm them in this election? It's difficult to answer uh, because, uh, you know, <laughs> it's very easy to sit on the sideline and give advice, and uh, I'm not a big fan of it, but uh, because it's uh, very difficult. People don't appreciate how difficult it is to run a party and to rule. I think that uh, Yemina uh, paid the price for being incoherent in the last election, and this caused the disintegration of Yamina and the government. Well, they paid a price, but leader of Yamina became prime minister, so... Yeah, but you know, in retrospect, was it worth it? I mean, for him personally, maybe he's going to have in his CV prime minister of Israel for one year, but other than that, he was the shortest-lived uh, prime minister. I don't think he's going to go down in history as someone who did, who left the mark as a prime minister. I don't think that this was his plan. So I think that uh, their incoherence and the fact that they have joined, let's say, a collection of so-called stars of the right, uh, hoping that it will attract voters, blew up uh, back in their face when it's all uh, disintegrated. Most Israeli elections since I've been involved, since 1999, have some sort of surprise, maybe a little bit less over the last very rapid cycles. But I'm thinking of... Shas winning 17 seats in 1999, Shinui in 2003, 15 seats, the Pensioners, Kahlon, even Lapid in 2013 when he won 19 seats, nobody predicted it. If you had to try to predict the unpredictable, can you imagine any surprises in this next election? I actually do, and it's not a pleasant one. <laughs> Great. I think, Cheer uh, us up. I think that Ben Gvir has a chance of uh, surprising the polls. I think he's becoming super popular, especially because he's becoming now a symbol of the other side of, uh, let's say, the danger. I think it strengthens, strengthens him tremendously. I think it's a strategic mistake to make him so important, and I think he might surprise because of it. So you mean a strategic mistake of the left? Yes. And you mean a surprise beyond the 10 seats he's currently polling in most polls coming in third place? Like, you think he could do better than that? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think he can do much better than that. Well, that's good, because this is a conversation Angela and I were just having. Who do you think are all those voters voting from? Are they all, uh, you know, national religious or what we call Khardal, uh, uh, Haredi uh, nationalists? Or are they coming from other camps as well? I think that we have a new, I would say, breaking line now in Israel, which is, if it was in the last elections, Bibi, yes or no, I think now especially for the right wing, is it, it is about having Arabs or Arab parties in the coalition. And who is a better symbol for that other than Ben Gvir? I mean, he's leading this theme. And uh, as the leader of this theme, I think it appeals to many people on the right from all walks of life. And uh, people might start to see him as a legitimate leader. And in my opinion, it's a, it's a big risk. But at the same time, this is also a risk for Netanyahu because originally, if there was anybody who legitimized Mansour Abbas's ram being in a coalition, it was Bibi who met with Mansour Abbas over and over again and in the last election was very openly courting the Arab vote. So obviously now Netanyahu and Likud are saying never, we will never sit with them, we won't even rely on them. 
for you know, outside the coalition. But you know, the right wing of, are not stupid. They saw what happened. Those who are dead against having Arabs in the coalition know that it was Netanyahu who basically opened the door to that happening. Do you think this will be something that could be Netanyahu's undoing? Netanyahu basically have legitimized both Abbas and Benkvir. And I think both of them are, uh, I would say, coming back to bite him in the ass, pardon my French. But Benkvir is a risk also for Netanyahu, because I think that Benkvir can appeal to a lot of Likud voters that might think that uh, Netanyahu is not, uh, anyway, is going to be the largest party. Maybe he's not tough enough, and they're going to say, why not give Benkvir a chance? That's funny, because I talked to a voter a couple weeks ago who was exactly the profiler saying. He said he voted Likud most of his life, and then he switched to Benkvir to ben in the last election. Tal, I want to go out, zoom out a little bit, and talk about the history of elections that we've been involved in. In the last 25 years, and I still can't believe it's 25 years, but it's almost 25 years, do you see big underlying changes in Israeli politics, or are we facing the same basic questions that we were facing back in 1999? Well, if uh, to recall, Dalia, 99 was still a campaign about uh, peace and security. And we used to ask the word peace in surveys, which we yeah, don't anymore. Peace, uh, unfortunately, is no longer with us. Uh, as a term, uh, definitely not in election. Try to think who maybe, uh, even in one uh, campaign, uh, they mentioned peace in the last election. I don't recall. Uh, so in that respect, it changed. The Palestinian issue is not any longer an issue. It was a big issue. I think now with the Abraham Accords and the normalization with some other countries, uh, the Palestinian issue seems more uh, distant for Israelis. So in that respect, it changed. In other respects, I think that the divide in the Israeli public between, the, let's say, the cultures is still there. We are still a split society, almost 50-50, as we saw in the last uh, four and now fifth cycle, and we're going to continue with it, by the way, much like the U.S. Uh, so you think that this 50-50 split, uh, this kind of paralysis of Israeli politics, will remain also in the post-Netanyahu era? Yes. The only thing that can change that, in my opinion, is there will be, I would say, a re-establishment of the old partnership with the Haredim, with the left. Uh, this is the only thing that can break here. I think that the Haredim are, in their core values, much more theoretically, should be associated with the left rather than the right, especially the economic right. For many reasons, this has uh, changed. But if this happens again, the 50-50 will break. Otherwise, we are uh, going to face it, in my opinion, for quite some time. Let me ask you about the last part of what we think is interesting, which is our work around the world. How did it happen that Israeli consultants became so popular abroad? Let me be more specific. Why are you so popular with so many leaders? And I always have this image in my head of like heads of state calling you on your cell phone. What is it? What is the basis of that rapport? Thanks. I don't think it's there's by now many, including yourself, that have done tremendous work abroad. I was uh, happy to work with a lot of uh, these in the past. Um, I think that uh, we are um, we know how to adapt. I think we are flexible. I think it's part of the Israeli chutzpah. And I think it's about the people who can listen. As well, a good consultant, we learned it from our one of our big teachers, Stan Greenberg. My great mentor. That we need to listen to people in order to understand what they want and know how to 
advice right. I think it's about also listening to these leaders and what they want. Uh, if, you, if you're a good listener, you can become a good consultant. If not, you cannot. Listening doesn't come as easily to some people as others. And I hope our listeners will have learned, I, I certainly have from this conversation. Thank you, Tal Silverstein, for being the first guest on season two of Election Overdose. And uh, we'll have you back in the next season. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. See you again on season, uh, on election number six. And now it's party time. This is the section you've all been waiting for in which we lighten up. And not everything is quite so serious. And we're going to try to um, tell you what we think is fun, fascinating and curious about Israeli elections. So the way I see Israeli elections, we regularly have between 20 and 40 parties running in each election. And still the voters say we have nobody to vote for. I am here to tell you that there are parties to vote for uh, because just think of all the parties that ran in the last elections or the last few elections, but did not make the 3.25% voter threshold in March 2020. That's the 23rd Knesset. I want to read the bottom 10, just to give you a sense of who these parties are so we can understand what they have to say about Israeli society. For example, the number one of the bottom 10 is called A New Agenda for Election Reform, led by Avital Ofek, because, of course, when you have one single policy agenda, you must start a new party in Israel. Another one is called The Power to Influence for the Public to Live in Dignity. That is the name of the party. So it's kind of the manifesto in the party name. Another one is called Da'am, a green economy and one state, which leads to the interesting question of why environmental and green parties never cross the threshold in Israel historically. We'll be talking about that, too. Here's another one. It's called The Jewish Heart, led by Eliosef. That's part of the name. Good to know that it's led by Eliosef, even though I never heard of him. The next one is called Shema. Yes, like the prayer. Led by Naftali Goldman, there's the Bible Block Party. Now bear with me for the last one. It's called Red and White, Cherbet Doran, led by Ami Feinstein, Waiting for the Mashiach. The Mashiach is already here, dot, dot, dot. That is the name of the party as it was registered at the Central Election Commission. I was going to ask you to guess how many voters voted for all of these parties, the bottom 10, I didn't read all their names, combined, because then we'll have... We'll have something to say about what that means. Just take a guess. I'd Random say guess. all 10 together, less than 1,000 voters. All 10 together, 5,628 votes. Now, that sounds marginal when you consider that it takes about 40,000 votes to reach a single Knesset seat. However... So what was that number again? 5,000? 5,628. 5,628 people voted for those 10 parties. Yes. But it's that 5,628 seems marginal, but it's not really that marginal if you combine it with the 31,000 who voted for the top 10 parties that did not cross the threshold in that election cycle, which includes Itamar Ben-Gavir's Otsma Yudit, which had nearly 20,000. That was the biggest of the unsuccessful parties that year. It includes the Women's Party with 2,700 votes and the Pirate Party with 1,400 votes. So I guess my question is, what does this bizarre party circus say about how Israelis see the validity of the electoral process. That's almost 40,000 people, possibly almost a full seat, who voted for parties that had pretty much no chance of crossing. And does that say something about their level of trust in the system? Well, I think that there is a romance to democracy. And some people want to think that the pirates can actually get into the Knesset and can represent them. So, you know, people actually made it into the in the polling booth and for those who have never voted in Israel, you've got this big tray full of lots of uh, different pieces of paper, the actual physical ballots. That's still the way uh, voting is done in Israel. And sometimes there are two trays because there's not enough room for all the different parties. 
And so, you know, you have to spend like a few seconds actually looking for, because you, usually you know who you're going to vote for. You're going to spend a few minutes like looking where, where is that ballot that you're going, that you're going to choose. And there's a temptation sometimes. Is it a temptation to protest? I mean, I th- sometimes think that Israelis look at the party list as a legitimate set of options for who's going to represent them and who's going to make policy, or they look at it like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. In other words, the parties really don't matter. I hate them all. Let's just pick a wrapping and open it up and see what's inside. And that is that sounds to me like a very, very useful way of deciding who you're going to vote and legitimate as everyone else. I think it expresses a certain measure of alienation. And this was supposed to be the cheerful section, but we'll have to leave it at that. Well, Nick, when, I, when, when I'm going to do this section, they'll be really cheerful. Then we're going to have fun. And that's party animals, and even two party animals like you and me, Dalia, need to know when to call time. Thank you to Shani Aviram, who produced us. Thank you to our fantastic guest, Tal Zilberstein. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining our second season. Election Overdose will be back next Thursday and every Thursday until the last election result is in. Whatever your week plans, if you're going to live it up like an Netanyahu with Pink Moy and Cointreau, or just kick back with a book and a cup of tea, remember what Shimon Peres said. Poles are like perfume. They're wonderful to smell, but better not drink them. Shabbat shalom and have a great weekend. <laughs>